I just got up and started running towards the casualties. There was rounds hitting in the dirt next to me from a machine gun. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Jeremy Holder was a medic in the Australian Army for seven years. He served within Special Operations Command for four years, which included a deployment to Afghanistan with the commandos as a platoon medic. Jez spoke to Thomas Kay about his time in Afghanistan and the reality of being a combat medic for Special Forces. I'm Thomas Kay, and today I'm speaking over Zoom with Jeremy Holder. Jez, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Let's jump into the early days and tell us a bit about your childhood and upbringing. I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. Grew up in the northern suburbs, just with your, you know, I'd assume your standard middle-class family. You know, mum and dad built the house before I was born and they're, they're still in it to this day. Pretty boring childhood, I think, just your standard. Stock standard. Yeah. Was there anything that you had any sort of military ties in your family or anything that sort of gave you that little bit of something to pull you in? Mum and Dad tell the story that they knew from a very early age and I think they talk about, you know, not long after I could talk. So, you know, two or three years old, being really drawn to the army. So that was before I was able to have any influence from any family members. Don't recall ever meeting my grandfather. Uh, He died when I was very, very young. But my grandfather was a signalman in the, uh, the AIF, I think, and then was a, uh, a prisoner of war in Changi, in Changi prison. You know, I didn't get to speak to him. And as a kid, Dad didn't really talk too much about that side of things. I, I think obviously it was a super tough time for their family. And apart from that, I just had an uncle that was, I'm sure it was 7 RER in Vietnam. So that was the only sort of family influence. And none of them were really an influence because, you know, my uncle wouldn't talk too much. He knew I loved military stuff, so he'd drop something every now and then as that sort of cool uncle dropping a NAM story. But, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of influence. It was just something that, uh, that it appears I was sort of born with and, and wanted to do. What's your memory of September 11? I'm sure it was year 12 because I'm positive I was driving. I had my P's not long and I was a basketball referee as my job. So I remember coming home from basketball and refing games. So you get home quite late and sitting down and, and grabbing some snacks after running up and down a court 2,500 times in a couple of hours. So uh, and I sat down on the couch and I put the TV on and, and like everyone, you know, the vision was on every channel. And at first you almost thought it was the same movie on every channel. So I remember it happening and I remember it being just that powerful vision. And but I suppose I was quite naive. I, I didn't have, you know, being so young, I think I was 17, no, just 17. So I, I probably didn't have the, uh, you know, I didn't really understand the magnitude of what, what that meant and what was going to happen from there. So in my mind, I was already joining the army. Um, my application went in when I think when I was 16, nine months, I started the process. I was definitely 17. I mean, I was 17 when I joined the army. So I started that process pretty early on. So I already knew I was doing it. So, I, you know, who knows what would be going through mum and dad's head, obviously being more mature and they would sort of maybe be a bit worried. I, I actually haven't asked them, but yeah, I definitely remember coming home from refing a basketball game and, and seeing it live on TV. You joined the army, you run us through sort of the timeline from there to how you became a medic. I don't know what they call it now, whether it's or HSC. So I think they called it TEE in West Australia. So I had no intention of doing that. I was going to join the army for however long that was going to be. And then I wanted to be a police officer. That was it. I had my, my sights set. So in year 11 and 12, instead of doing HSC subjects, I did like a work placement. So one day a week I would go out to work. And so through Surf Lifesaving, I had a connection with this super old school ex-regiment highway patrol officer, TC. He was very well known in West Australia. Probably half of Western Australia have been given a ticket by TC. He was just one of those old school sergeants that were super well connected. 
So he got me work experience with his unit, his traffic unit once a week. So I'd go to school four days a week and then either on a Thursday night, I'd do a night shift with the traffic unit or on a Friday, I would do work experience. You know, again, this would never happen in these days, but I would literally go on patrol with them. By the second year, by year 12, I remember pulling over a car one night full of some uh, young people in a dark road in back of Wanneroo. So I was 16 and something years old and I'd been working with him one day a week for two years. And he's like, all right, just go tell him we go up to the car and tell him we're pulling him over for speeding and grab his license. You know, so I'm 16 dressed in, I must have honestly looked like a kid dressed in a, uh, essentially a suit, shirt and tie, I walk up with a mag light and ask for his license and uh, shitting my pants, by the way. Just doing loose stuff. I remember being involved in a huge brawl with some bikies, like all these, not me, I was in the back seat of the car just, again, pooing my pants. But that was what I did. So that was all I wanted to do, join up, be infantry, and then be a cop. So we uh, we do all the paperwork and much to mum's disgust, signing the papers. Actually, mum wouldn't sign the papers because if we, I went to war and died, she didn't want to have her signature on the papers saying she signed me up because I was under 18. So dad signed the papers. So we go through the process and dad's taking me to all the recruitment so do all the physical, which is fine. Do the medical, somehow got through with my red hair. But I found out, I actually found out I was colorblind. So up until that point, I had no idea that I was colorblind. And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. What's that mean? They're like, well, you can't be infantry. And I could not believe it. I was absolutely devastated. That was my whole sort of teenage career. All I wanted to do was be infantry and then maybe go on to the regiment. I didn't know about the commandos at that stage. And I found out I was colorblind, so I was absolutely devastated. And then he went through, he's like, I'm like, well, will it stop me getting the army? He's like, no, there is some jobs you can do. So I don't know how many jobs there are in the army. There must be hundreds. So he read through this list and there must have been like six jobs. And one of them was like a dental assistant, clerk, went through a few other jobs and I'm just like, there's no way. That's to me, and those jobs are incredibly important. The defence doesn't work without support staff and logistics. So it's very important, Robert. That wasn't me. That wasn't what I had thought of my whole life to be. Not what you've been preparing for. Not what I've been preparing for in my mind. You know, then he got to medic and I'm like, mm, I don't know. Like I was never really good with blood. Apparently as a small toddler, I ran into the corner of the TV and cut my eyebrow open. And so dad took me to the mirror to show me this and this blood running and I seen this blood and just freaked out. And so from that moment until I was a teen, I was never a fan of blood. So, the, you know, he said, you can be a medic. And so I'm just thinking about blood. I don't know if I can handle this, but I've been doing surf lifesaving for a few years and I really enjoyed the first aid side of things. Like really loved the medic stuff. I shouldn't say medic. I love the first aid side of, of surf lifesaving. So... I thought, oh, yeah, he's like, well, as a medic, you can still be attached to infantry and you can go outside the wire. And he was totally being a salesman to the medic. I think they were quite short. So he totally sold me in so that I could still go outside the wire with the boys and do infantry stuff, but I'll be a medic. Looking back, I found it super ironic once I was on my medic course that it was one of the few jobs I could do, yet everything we do as a medic is colour-coded. And we literally test other people for colour perception and colour blindness and we're colour blind. Every needle, every drug is all colour coded. Yet I couldn't be infantry and carry heavy things on my back and shoot things. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. But uh, I'm very, very grateful that I'm colour blind and it put me down that path. I guess you have that, uh, that officer to thank for steering you in direction of becoming a medic. Big time, yeah. Everything happens for a reason. I, I really strongly believe that. And, and that's certainly one that has put me in a very good trajectory in life. So you went from entering and going along the path of becoming a medic, then you went up and became a medic attached to the four RAR, bracket commandos. How did that come about? I did the, uh, and things have changed a little bit now, but I did the medic course at uh, the School of Health down in Bonagilla, so Albury-Wodonga, just uh, on the border, Victorian New South Wales border. So I did that nine-month basic medical assistant course, and then I was posted to three combat service support battalion, three SISBI, so I spent 18 months up there as a junior medic and you, you work under supervision. And so I did that and then did my advanced medic course while I was up there. So back down at Albury-Wodonga for another four months. And then you're able to work essentially unsupervised and more atomic. So from there, my posting cycle was up the two-year, I think it was a two-year posting cycle. As a young medic that was, I suppose, in those days fit, I loved the medic work. So, you know, I was always studying, I was always training. There's no doubt I would have pissed off my platoon sergeant, the amount I bugged him that if I wasn't going out on exercise that I could 
do ride-alongs with the ambulance service up in Queensland and I just do as much clinical placements as study as I can. And so when my time come up for posting, I uh, I remember the platoon sergeant sitting me down and said, sort of, scheme's got two options for you. You can go to 5th Aviation Regiment as a medic with the helos or a spot's come up at 4-Hour Hour Commando. And I was really torn. He's like, you need to make the decision now. And I'm like, fuck, how do you make that? 19 years old, how do I make this? potentially like huge decision and it's not often i suppose in the army you really have a choice to be honest so one i was pretty stoked to get an option but it was hard you know you know i'd done so many ride-alongs with qas and worked with critical care flight paramedics uh so i had this vision of what a army medic on a helo would be but i didn't have a great deal of knowledge on what the medics did at four commando so I didn't have any contacts or any friends down there. And I believe it was still quite new for, you know, it was only a year or two old where I think they just had a company, Bravo Company was the commando company, and then the whole unit sort of transitioned to a full commando regiment. So I really sort of thought about it and sort of asked a few of the medics and spoke to guys who'd been posted to the aviation regiment. And they were like, man, you very rarely get to actually go up in a helo. Like you're not like the paramedics here in Townsville who are winching onto Magnetic Island or cruise ships and pulling off critical patients. You're, you know, a lot of the time you're sitting in an ambulance in a remote airfield as medical support for the helos. So I'm like, oh, well, I definitely don't want to be doing that. And so I said, I'll go to the commandos. And so, yeah, posted down there. It was either end of 2003 or 2004, I think it was, but posted down there as a young medic, young corporal medic. Did you have any idea on sort of what would be involved when you joined them? No, I think I tried to give the regimental aid post a call and just sort of ask them some questions, but I was honestly going down there pretty clueless on what the role would be. What was the uh, learning curve like when you got immersed with them? Oh, it was pretty big and straight up too. So we, and again, this feels like a lifetime ago, so I apologise about some of the details, but I feel like I remember that it had had an increase in staffing because it had changed from essentially an infantry regiment that would have one medic per company and then they would have a support company that would have one or two medics and a doctor and a nurse. They're increasing their medic capability so they would have more medics attached. So unlike infantry, the commandos had a medic per platoon attachment. So they had a significant man increase in medic. So there's quite a few of us pretty junior guys that were posted to the unit at the time. So And the role, obviously, that the commandos do is very varied. There was a huge learning curve, and not just in the medicine, but in the insertion techniques, in the weapons, because I hadn't fired anything apart from a minimizer style the parachuting, the amphibious, uh, roping, all of those type of things. So it was a huge learning curve. I think it was within a couple of weeks of being posted, I got sent out to support a commando selection course at Holsworthy. It was a very hot January or February. It was a baptism by fire because I remember the guys had to do a 20 clicker in Holsworthy in the searing heat. I think probably 40 degrees. They certainly weren't doing the heat management in those days as much as they did in, in the sort of subsequent years. And, you know, to make a long story short, really, I just had over a two-day period was just inundated with heat casualties. And on the 20 clicker itself, actually, it was almost a mass casualty. I remember we had eight down with heat exhaustion, a number with heat stroke, including at least one unconscious heat stroke patient who was very unwell. Looking back on it now with probably a lot more experience, you know, he was probably borderline dying. And I remember being my, by myself, I was getting low on gear because I'd already treated a number of casualties. And uh, yeah, the, I remember the RSM, I was treating an officer. I won't go any further. But I was treating an officer and the RSM grabbed me. He's like, we need you now. And so we jumped in a land cruise and flew to the finish line and there was an unconscious soldier. And uh, Jason Marks, who was a commando, killed in Afghanistan. So Jason and I were medics together up in Townsville. So I got posted down there as a medic and he was down there on selection to become a commando. So I was medic for, we were very good mates up in Townsville. So he was on his selection. He smashed it in the heat. Like was just, you know, he's a fit dude. So Jace, I got there and treating some case and Jace comes across the line and just looked rat ass. Like he was hot, but he was doing all right. And he looked at me and he must have seen him, my eyes like dinner plates and treating this unconscious commando applicant. I'm like, bro, I need a hand. I need you to medic up. Like I need a hand. And uh, I remember jumping on the phone and calling the RAP. We've got essentially a mass cas out here. Like I, I need a hand. And they're like, where are you? I'm like, Fuck, I don't know. We're out the back of Holesworthy like somewhere. And so, you know, popped them on since so I think the RSM and, and uh, got the medics started coming out of the RAP in their own. I think a few of them got in trouble because they actually come out into the range in their private vehicles just with med kits and shit to try and help out. So, yeah, treated about eight guys, certainly the one guy I can remember who was critically ill. 
And so that was kind of my baptism of fire to the unit doing selection. But, you know, luckily I was able to, one, not kill anyone. As, as a medic, it's never a good sign. It worked out well to sort of say that, hey, you know, this skinny, young, red-headed kid is not a bad medic. Before you wanted to see a lot of action and then now you've joined the commandos and you're seeing a lot more, learning a lot more and then obviously trial by fire. Were you happy with sort of the way things were going? Oh, very much. I mean, for me, it was just guys that you worked with, they were always driven to be the best at what they did. So, you know, the physical training for me was just, you know, to go from a logistics unit where I don't know how many of the hundreds of people at the CISB would smoke and not do any PT outside of compulsory PT. That was the complete opposite. Looking back on everyone in the unit that I knew, there must have been like, I'm sure there was more, but there was probably less than half a dozen to a dozen known smokers for the operators. You know, you just wouldn't, you know, whether they're hiding it, I don't know level of physical fitness and then that would translate into their skill sets as well so whether it was shooting and you know at a CISB at a support battalion you look you don't shoot very often and yet these guys were shooting daily a lot of the time you know daily to weekly they were shooting especially for tag I mean they're shooting almost daily and for a young dude it was just amazing to be involved in some way. Can you tell us through to how you then found out that you're going to Afghanistan and your first thoughts following that? So I remember getting the news you know, as a medic, I was pretty excited. I didn't really know anything about it because there was no media. 2005 and 2006, there just wasn't the media coverage of SOTG. I think the Australian public knew that uh, the special operations were over there, but there was no, just not the media coverage there is today. So I didn't have a great deal of, of information on what was happening over there and didn't know my platoon. And so, you know, I went back home and my housemate was back by then. So he was the first medic on rotation one to head over. So I remember chatting about it and then I'm like, oh, better let mum and dad know. So I jumped on the phone. I remember, I can remember exactly where I was standing where I gave mum the call and said, pretty exciting news. I've been uh, selected to go to Afghanistan. Just silence. I'm like, mum, mum, you there? And then just this crying on the end of the phone, completely upset that her son was going to war. I don't think I was too sensitive in the way I dropped the news. I, looking back on it, I'd probably, uh, I'd probably approach that in a, uh, a different way these days. They said, the proviso of you going is that you need to complete your para course. You know, it was a super busy unit. So as a medic, you, you have to, everything they do required a medic or medics to support the task. So we were pretty busy. So I hadn't done my medic course yet because I'd been a medic for however long there, 18 months at the unit. And so I'd covered lots of drop zones as a medic. And I'm sure you've probably talked to guys before about military parachuting. They fall pretty quick so you don't get shot. So, you know, guys just land on the ground like a sack of potatoes. And so I'd spent 18 months just scraping guys off DZs as a medic. So I'd treated some really nasty fractures, some serious back injuries, shoulder injuries. And so after 18 months of picking up these guys, they're saying, all right, it's your turn to jump. I'm like, oh. Uh, I'm not afraid about the, the jumping part. I'm afraid about the landing part, just picturing the last 18 months worth of injuries of people I've treated. It was a physically demanding course. And then uh, it sort of culminates with the last few days of six or seven jumps, 80 kilo fighting weight in those days. Not like Dan's 70 kilo dickhead. I, was, I think I was 80, 85 kilos. And so you fall pretty quick. And uh, so I got my first five jumps out of the way. And then I had the night jump. And I remember um, the winds were starting to come up and winds and parachuting just don't go down well. My best mate, he was on the stick before me, circling and circling for what felt like hours. So, if, you know, the normal army thing, you, uh, you lay your pack down or you lay your parachute down and have a sleep. And so I remember sort of waking up from a snooze and saying, hey, has any, anyone seen Simo? And uh, they're like, you didn't hear? And I look up and there's this ambulance driving lights and sirens across the, uh, across the DZ. They're like, man, he just messed himself up. And so my best mate, I didn't know his injuries, but they said he busted himself up. And they're like, all right, you guys are up. I'm like, whoa, this is got one more to go. So we went up and did our night jump and I landed hard on my shoulder. So I'm just going, oh, Jesus, don't. I need this to go to Afghanistan. Don't, don't be busted up. And so for the next two weeks after the para course, I just spent that time trying to privately rehab my shoulder and not let anyone know it was busted so I didn't get pulled from the trip. There's only two or maybe three guys that were commando qualified. So the rest of us were just black hats. So we're, we're non-commando qualified. And they said, but you've got to pass the commando fitness assessment. I think about it now and I would shiver. But in those days I was, I was pretty fit. But I'm going, geez, I've got this shoulder that's killing me. I've impinged a ligament in my shoulder from hitting it in the deck. How am I going to do 10 or 12 heaves, 60, I think 60 or 70 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 
then I think it was a 3.2 kilometer run in your battle dress under a period of time. And so it's tough for the best of times then alone when you're carrying a shoulder injury. So yeah, somehow I think I just dosed up and they call it the SF candy. So I just had a bunch of, what do they call it? The paracetamol and codeine and then the SF candy of the Naproxen 1000. So it's this anti-inflammatory, which now looking back on is terrible the amount I probably had. It's like a Nurofen, but on steroids. So just smashed these, this pink candy and somehow got my way through the, the commando fitness assessment to uh, tick the two boxes. And the last one was just had the, the weapons quals to get, but there was no real, it was pretty basic for a, for a medic. I didn't, certainly didn't have to shoot on the level those guys did. So ticked all the boxes and that was it. It was starting all the pre-deployment training with the guys. They pulled me in the office and said, hey, the medic from Bravo Company's got pretty sick and we need to bring him back to Australia. He got a pretty severe viral illness. So they, they said, we need you to go over early. So I actually went over about two or three weeks earlier than my platoon. So I was sort of traveling by myself. And so I remember, you know, traveling to country and then on the Herc from another country in, in there and give you the command to put on your helmet, and your body armor. And then it sort of just drops out of the sky. You know, they go a pretty steep descent to land on dirt runway at TK. I remember the heat, really hot, just hit you in the face hot because that was just a couple of days after Anzac Day in 2006. We were going in there in fighting season, so we are going to obviously the opposite sort of season to us. So we were going to have pretty warm temperatures and that was the start of it. And then that day, I just remember, you know, I was probably the fittest I've ever been when I went over. And I think I just remember grabbing my medic bag and my pack and stuff and just walking a short distance just getting real short of breath and then uh, this is how little i knew about tk and probably even afghanistan but the base is a bit over 1500 meters altitude so you're almost a mile high and i hadn't done any altitude acclimatization so just that short 150 whatever meter walk from the airfield to the vehicles and up to camp russell i was just so short of breath from karen's and bags and took a good week and a half two weeks of running around the airfield and some cardio to get acclimatized to the uh, to the altitude and the heat and then after getting acclimatized and then sort of getting out from tk and that what were the first encounters with the locals on your first patrol like our first patrol was still a few weeks away so because i got there early it was another company and i didn't really know anybody there and the doc sort of showing me around and then you heard a lot of shooting and some uh, some bombs and whatnot so yeah, I remember standing up on the HESCO on the RAP and sort of looking out in the distance while colleagues were in a gunfight, pretty full on. And then that afternoon, he's like, I'll take you down to the FST, field surgical team. And that's where all the medivacs would come into. He's like, I'll take you down and introduce you to the team. So I'm like, already I'm just pinging from like hearing this gunfight and coming in. And we go down there, there's this colonel surgeon who's running the FST. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. He's wearing like old school Desert Storm camo pants. He's got a Kuwait camel racing T-shirt on. So he's wearing this black T-shirt that has Kuwait camel racing. He's got his hat on that's got the colonel, I think the bird, the American bird. And he's got this cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's smoking. And he's like, you want a sake? I'm like, what? Like, I'm 21 years old. And he's like, do you want a sake? I'm like. A colonel's offering me a sake in Afghanistan. I'm like, I can't say no. And uh, I remember having this warm sake. It was just because it come in a milk container. It was just obviously the way they were smuggling in and it just tasted like shit. But I just didn't know what to say. You know, I had a full colonel from the American Army in a Kuwait camel racing shirt offering me a, a sake in a trauma bay. And so that was my intro, intro first day introduction to Afghanistan. Tell us about the different roles you had as a medic over in Afghanistan. So my primary role was as a platoon medic for the commandos. Every morning I'd go around to the platoon and make sure, you know, was there any coughs, colds or sore holes, you know, so we'd like a primary healthcare run. Go to the guys, you know, if they've got any sort of musculoskeletal injuries like sprains or strains, any abrasions from sliding in the dirt and the rocks or anything that you would normally sort of see you'd not even see your GP for, but it's just preventative medicine. So just making sure that the guys are in sort of peak physical condition making sure there's no medical ailments that can flare up in the field obviously once you go outside that wire it becomes a whole lot more complex to get people treatment i can only treat them with what i'm carrying and i'm on a medic i'm not a doctor so i'm not carrying huge amounts of antibiotics and you know different types of creams and stuff i've had a limited amount so the guys need to be healthy before going outside the wire and uh, you didn't want to medivac anybody that you didn't have to. One, it'll decrease our fighting force and you don't have that person doing their primary role. And secondly, it's, it's you know, you're sending a multiple very, very expensive aircraft 
into a hostile area and so you're looking at the lives of all the crew and potentially your mate on that helo so it was medivacking someone was not taken lightly so you know i would go around every morning on base and just make sure that the guys didn't have any any form of injury or illness that uh, that may flare up or prevent them from doing their job from what i understand medics never rest especially out there so when you weren't out you're always working you'd always find something to do whether you're out assisting with trauma surgeries or part of the field surgical team i believe yeah i think some people would argue that medics never rest i mean medics have been known to get many hours sleep in the back of an ambulance covering a range but no i think on operations and certainly afghanistan for most medics in force command special operations air force navy i think any medic that deployed to the middle east was generally pretty busy and i'll certainly no exception to that if i wasn't on patrol outside the wire i would make every effort i can to be down at the field surgical team treating whatever come in because those helos would come in generally multiple times a day bringing in either coalition or civilian trauma casualties and as a medic that was just the best role like it was so fulfilling as a medic being able to do everything that you're trained to do plus more and so i just absolutely every spare minute i could i'd be uh, down there in the fst just gaining as much experience and helping as many people as i can so you know people ask me would i go back to afghanistan and i'd probably say no not now that i'm married with kids but if i could go back tomorrow in that field surgical role with a relative level of safety I would go back there tomorrow because that, that was just such an experience. It was like getting 10, 15 years of a, of a trauma hospital in Australia's experience in weeks and months. You know, it was just every day, multiple casualties coming in with multi-trauma, blast injuries, gunshot wounds, and then just really bizarre health things. You know, the amount of people that would come in with massive cancerous growths on their arms and legs from being in a third world country, not, not getting the treatment. And just being able to do your job and get the training like, you know, despite that colonel that wore the, the Q8 camel racing shirt, he was just an amazing, amazing trauma surgeon and the level of knowledge he had and experience. I think someone said that was his 11th or 12th deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan as a trauma surgeon. And then obviously would work in trauma centers in, uh, in the US. So the amount I learned off the American trauma team and the flight medics was just, to me, was just mind blowing and amazing. Can you share some of the memories that stand out from your time in Afghanistan, from treating some of your own troops there or part of the coalition through to also the Afghan civilians? Yeah, so I would say I treated hundreds of casualties in the, in the just under five months I was there. Probably over 95% of them would be the Afghan population that were just brought in from sort of just either stepping on old unexploded ordnance or being shot or stabbed by Taliban or being shot or stabbed by themselves. I mean, all they've known is war. So I remember a medivac coming in and we went down to help and they brought in this 60-year-old, which, you know, was a super rough 60. Like it wasn't an Australian 60-year-old, but this guy had obviously lived a, a tough life and he looked much older than, than 60, but super fit. And he'd been shot multiple times. So I remember getting him on the trauma bed. We call it getting him trauma naked. His white clothes were blood-soaked. We started counting gunshot wounds and we got up to 17 gunshot wounds or 17 holes in this guy. And they all, I mean, we'll certainly no CSI, but they all looked like entry wounds. And we just kept them, we're chalking them up on the board every time we found it and we're writing it. And it just 17 holes, most of them were in his arms and legs, but he had about seven in his chest and all on the left side. And that's, and that's obviously where your heart is. So to this day, I don't know how that guy lived because he did live. He walked out of the Afghan ICU about two months later. So I don't know how he lived to start. But then secondly, the story was that once we got the interpreter and stabilised him, that it was his cousin that shot him because his, this guy got the, uh, got the position in the village to call prayer, which is, you know, is quite a prestige position. And, uh, and his cousin thought he was in for the job and was jealous that this old mate got it. And so you know, what, what else do you do when you're in a fight with your family? You, uh, you shoot him 17 times with an AK. And that was one of many sort of Afghan trauma stories. Brad, the regiment medic, and myself were down in the trauma bay. There was a, uh, a medivac come in with three, three pediatrics, so three children. It might have been the actual night before we left country. Uh, I can't recall their ages. There was maybe a three-year-old girl, a five- or six-year-old boy, and a, uh, a nine- or ten-year-old girl. And they were playing down by a river, and it was an old Russian unexploded ordnance, and uh, they were playing around with it, and it went off. 
the young girl had really severe leg injuries and had an arterial tourniquet applied that was a, that was effective. She was still critically ill. She'd lost a, a large amount of her blood volume, but was still alive. And so I was treating a less critical injured patient with Brad, the other Aussie medic. You know, we look over and use some commotion. A pretty junior medic had released a tourniquet to check the bleeding on the patient, but that young girl had just enough blood circulating around her body to keep her brain and her organs pumping. And then when he released his tourniquet, it's blown the clot and it's bled. It was enough to kill her. So it, uh, you know, something, a simple life-saving intervention that was saving her was released too early, inappropriate stage by someone who shouldn't have done it. And uh, yeah, unfortunately that, uh, that, that little girl passed. And that's not to say that her injuries weren't severe, that she wouldn't have died in surgery or certainly later on of complications. You know, she'd lost, she had severe injuries and was, was pretty messed up. But yeah, I think looking back now, I, I don't think that, uh, I think she should have survived. But yeah, really shitty situation, but not one that I could control. From my understanding, it's not just gunshot wounds and any of that that you treated, but there's also a C-section that you delivered some twins. We would very rarely see females, you know, and I'm sure nothing's changed in this day. But in Afghanistan, females are probably not even second-class citizens. Rarely would a male let his wife or daughter be seen by the white people in Afghanistan. So when we did, in the odd occasion in those days when we did see them, they were in critically ill or injured condition. And they would generally leave them for far longer than they than they should have before they brought them in, and that was just the whole the whole trip. We would rarely see it. So on one occasion, and it may have even been the the last week before I left the country, they a medivac come in. They had a female on board, and she was pregnant, become ill, and had a breach birth. So instead of baby coming out head first, it's coming out breach. So it's coming out feet first. Breach even in a first world country can be dangerous to the baby and the mum. But in Afghanistan, and for a long period of time, it, even more so. So they brought the patient in, and I remember just coming on, putting on the trauma bed, and sort of she was the only patient. And I remember just seeing this blue foot hanging out of this woman. As a young 20, I turned 22 over there, so a young 22-year-old medic, I'd had very limited to no exposure to obstetrics. Either way, I knew a blue foot hanging out of a, another human is suboptimal. We started resuscitating the mum who was unconscious and then she arrested so her heart stopped beating so we commenced cpr was starting to hang blood doing sort of resuscitation i remember they had a pretty pretty low speed ultrasound machine there and they worked out it was actually twins because i mean afghanistan you're not going to a midwife or obstetrician every four to six weeks to have ultrasounds and checkups so we weren't aware that it was when we found out there was a second bub. And looking at the blue foot, it was probably obvious that first baby was deceased. But then we seen the second baby and it was still alive. So the decision was made that they would do uh, an emergency cesarean whilst resuscitating the mum. And so uh, I didn't have a lot to do. I was on standby to resuscitate uh, one of the babies. So we had obviously three patients, three potential patients, the mother and the two neonates. And yeah, so we did the emergency cesarean. They pulled the, uh, the first baby out and then tried to resuscitate that one and then they pulled the breech out and it was pretty obvious that the breech bub was very much deceased so we didn't work on the the breech bub so we had a team working on the the second bub and another team working on the uh resuscitating the mum and after a period of time and obviously the work of all the teams unfortunately they all sort of succumbed so neither the mother or the any of the babies survived so that was a uh, pretty shitty job but by that stage of the trip I was pretty immune to it like it was uh just another another person that probably shouldn't have died had they been in Australia there's no doubt that would have been picked up much earlier that the bub was breached and have specialist care but you're just not going to get that in a, in a country like Afghanistan and it sounds a little bit insensitive but I suppose I was a bit immune to it by that stage there's not I certainly can't control it but we can only do our best to try and patch up or clean up the issues that come to us but uh you know you can't fix a whole country or culture was there anything that helped you let your feelings go aside and just be able to focus on what's in front of you because a hesitation can be someone's life? So is there anything that helped you through making those tough decisions and just going straight into the job and not thinking about anything else, putting your emotions aside? Whether it's DNA or whether it's a mixture of DNA and training or it's training, you know, I always try to surround, team to this day, I really try to surround myself by people who are way better at things than I am. We had a lot of senior medics on that trip, especially from the American side in the FST. I mean, those guys were just, uh, and, and working with some of the Green Beret, the American SF medics, I was surrounded by people that had done a lot of these things before. So I tried to learn everything that we could off them, you know, know my capabilities, what I can and can't do. You know, I suppose that's self-awareness. 
as a medic, there's a small percentage of people and patients that we can make a massive difference in their outcomes. Because there's going to be patients that no matter how shitty a medic you are and what you try to do to them, that they'll live. Their injuries just aren't life-threatening, so they're going to live. On the other side of things, there's a portion of patients that no matter what you do or you know whether you step on that IED 10 metres from a trauma surgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon and medics, that you can have injuries that are just not survivable. And nothing you can do is going to bring that patient back. So you've got the spectrum of people that no matter how shit you are, they'll still live. And they've got this spectrum of people, no matter how good you are, they won't live. But there's this portion of people in the middle that an intervention that someone else can do, it truly can be life-saving. That's certainly the, I think, the portion of patients that, that us medics, we strive to be the best at it. That one right intervention at the right time can make a huge difference to the outcome of that person making it home. So thankfully, that is a pretty small portion of people. A lot of the people we treat on that side that they're going to live no matter what, thankfully. Patients like that with the, the resus of the baby and the many other patients that I treated over there, I would certainly try my best to make sure they uh, they survive. But at the end of the day, if they've got an injury or an illness that, that's that bad, it doesn't matter what the team or myself do, that, that um, it was their time. Operation Perth, what can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so Operation Perth, we were tasked with clearing the Chora Valley from Chora down to Belushi. I think I said pre-interview, I'm pretty terrible with names. TK and Chora and Belushi about the only things I can remember. So we were tasked with clearing that valley of high and medium value targets and we were working with a coalition force. And so during the day, the commando force was clearing the valley, essentially door to door, going through trying to find bad dudes on one side of the, the river and on the other side of the river was a, uh, a company of American 10th Mountain Division. So I think we did that over about 10 days and then overnight the regiment would go in and do their thing and we would support from a vantage point where we could and then during the day as a larger force we would go in for sort of clearance missions. So, you know, we were in probably gunfights most of, you know, I don't know how many we're in. It was pretty regular from memory, sometimes just a few pot shots, other times a little bit more, but certainly that infamous day in Operation Perth we were clearing the valley and the Americans got hit really, really hard. I think an RPG hit one of their uh, platoon sergeants in the chest. I won't get too graphic, but uh, I don't think it was a painful death for him. And so they had one KIA and multiple wounded. And they, were, they were getting hammered on their side of the creek. I was with PHQs, so hearing a lot of this on the radio. We were sort of called to back them up, made our way to their position. And as our platoon headquarters married up with their platoon headquarters, I remember just as we were sort of coming into this sort of clearance over this small creek, just this huge explosion that just, you know, the percussion of this explosion. And then there was a further, a number of them. So there was these airburst RPGs just right on target to our PHQ. So we, we all hit the dirt and uh, I remember just getting on my guts and just getting covered in dirt, just getting hammered. We can feel it's close. And then I remember someone in front of me grabbing me their leg and rolling over and saying they hit. Just remember going, my ears sort of ringing, you know, sort of covered in dirt. You can smell the explosions. And, uh, you know, seeing this, you know, one of my mates get hit, this is real. And so I just crawled a couple of metres to him and sort of got my trauma shears off my body armour, just cut his pants because he's grabbing his leg and so looking for the wound. So assessing, uh, assessing the patient. And then over my radio is my call sign saying, we've got multiple guys injured, get to our location. So I'm treating one person going, shit, there's more? I then uh, turned back and to see where they were. And by this stage, there's, there's now they're following up the ambush with machine gun fire. And so I remember started crawling towards the next injured. I'm looking up. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to be crawling a long distance for this. I'm like, I can't crawl this far. So I just remember getting up and just running towards. I, I didn't look back at the threat or anything. I just got up and started running towards the casualties. There was rounds hitting in the dirt next to me from a machine gun. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to the range, but when you're sitting in the bunker of the range, you can hear that crack and they're just cracking over your head. They're cracking in the dirt. And I just remember just running to the casualty and they had the casualties in the team. And by this stage, obviously our, our guys are fighting back hard. I get to this, to the guys and they're in, the, in an aqueduct. So their farmers dig an aqueduct to water their, their crops. And they had the casualties down there. Some couple of the combat first aid, uh, commando first aiders were treating them. So I get to this aqueduct and uh, there was three or four casualties in the, uh, might have been three casualties in the aqueduct. And I'm going, fuck, there's no room for me. And so I'm laying on the edge of this aqueduct. There's rounds cracking over and there's no room for me in this aqueduct. 
the interpreter's laying down, rolling around in pain, saying, I'm shot, I'm shot, I'm shot. So I go to him first and I'm like, where are you shot? And he's pointing to his ass. And so I sort of throw him down and on his right ass cheek. It must have been about a 50 cent piece size patch of blood. And so I just ripped down his pants and he's just got this little dot on his ass cheek. Are you fucking serious? Um, so I'd still quick sweat. There's no other injuries. And he's rolling around like he's the worst. And so I just put him aside and looked at the guys. And the CFAs have done an amazing job on the uh, patching up the couple of other guys. So I assess, started assessing them. By that stage, there's still lots of rounds going around. By that stage, the guys went off to help with the fight so I can get some cover. And then the decision was made that we need to get back to a casualty collection point in a more safe position. We got the guys and then took them back to a, a casualty collection point and to work out all, all the sort of wounded that we had and the guys were regrouping and certainly doing their business. Because of the situation and you're stuck in the aqueduct and you don't quite fit, they'd have to clear out and sort of get everything over with before you'd call in evacs. Yeah, we at that stage when we were back from the aqueduct, we pulled back into a compound and had a casualty collection point set up where I could, in the medic terms, we call it tactical field care. So we sort of go from that care under fire to tactical field care and you know we're in a, a semi-secure location we had guys at the entrance to the compound and guys at the rear of the compound actually one of the injured our platoon sergeant one of the injured he was on the door providing cover with his uh, standing up there with his bandaged leg one of the toughest toughest dudes i've ever met uh, so he was up providing cover with another guy he was in a fair bit of pain and i was able to then assess all the other guys was this how you earned your medal for gallantry yeah, I was subsequently awarded the uh, the medal for gallantry, which uh, to this day I, I still think they sent the letter to the wrong guy. Any medic in my position would have done the same thing and I certainly didn't think about it. Oh, I don't think I did anything. Compared to what Brett Wood, who actually got injured in that battle as well but didn't tell me till the next day, fragging his toe. You know, compared to what Brett Wood, Matt Locke and a bunch of other guys honoured to have been awarded that, but uh, still think it was the wrong guy. You made sure the interpreter was all good as well. Yeah, he was fine. Yeah, he got uh, got medevaced and uh, never never come out patrol the Aussies again. It was too much for him. He was a nervous nally too, so it was he was bound to happen. You win some, you lose some. So, are there any other key memories from your time on deployment that you'd like to share with us? We were in another battle, and we'd used up a fair amount of ammunition. So they were um, they were bringing us more ammo. They airdropped it, and so we sent a bushmaster and filled up this bushmaster with uh, with ammo. So we had a bit of a standard army working party unloading all this ammo from the back of a Bushmaster from, from picking it up from a helo. And as we're doing it, just these rounds started flying over our heads. We heard something go over our head. We're like, what was that? And then a few seconds later, boom, in the background, was that an RPG? Was that at us? I assume so. And then next minute, it was just followed by machine gun fire. We were way out on this hill overwatching the valley. So whoever was shooting at us was from a pretty big distance. And so we've all hit the deck from doing this ammunition dump. So myself, I think it was Jamie the SIG and a few other guys and uh, our platoon sergeant and one of the operators just standing there looking down on us going, what are you doing? Well, like, there's rounds shooting. They're like, it's from so far away. Get up and get the ammo. I won't use any other words that they called us. But, uh, and then it sort of got more intense and more intense. I remember sort of falling back to platoon headquarters just a bit further back from a Bushmaster because I was unloading, I didn't have my gear on. So I had my body armor, my helmet, my rifle. There's probably some sergeants out there just wanted to put one on my chin, but my rifle was quite a few meters away. Not a lot, but I was behind a Bushmaster, essentially feeling naked, looking at my helmet, body armor, which is about two meters from the gear going, fuck, what do I do? Do I just wait for it to settle down or do I run out there, get my shit and come back just in case it gets worse? I don't know what to be caught here with just a pistol on my hip and a T-shirt. So I ran out and grabbed my body armor. Nothing happened. But in my mind, I was like, oh, man, if I get shot running out to get my body armor, that's not going to go down well. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. And so I remember that I put all my shit on. I remember one of the guys sprinting from one of the vehicles towards me and he just slides, does this like baseball slide in behind this mound to where I was. Hey, bro, and he just pulls out a bag of snakes. He goes, do you want a snake? And we're just like, this round's cracking over. He slid in. He's like, do you want a snake? I didn't know what to say. I'm like, sure. And I grabbed this red snake. He goes, oh, man, I'm going to get to the mortar car. Then he just ran off again. Just kept on going in that direction and uh, with his rifle and his bag of snakes. Just one of those moments where you just, it didn't feel real because we were, I think by that stage, it was later on in the deployment. You know, we'd been in a few gunfights. 
I guess overall though, it's a tough job that you have to do on the front line and even when you're not on the front line. Would you say that the effects of war and combat are pretty heavy on the medics as opposed to some of the other roles? I don't want to talk for anybody else and, and their roles. And I look at people's experiences as very subjective to them. So, you know, what one person might see as a full-on or traumatic event might be nothing for for someone else it's very subjective and there's lots of uh you know probably be a very rich man if i could work it you know work out the causes to it but everyone's different so i, I don't want to say the experiences of a medic is anything worse than someone being on a base and uh, you know i've had lots of conversations with people and certainly operators about our trip you know like i was only one of many medics that deployed with special operations that have just done phenomenal jobs many of them have been recognized for what they've done some of them haven't been recognized for what they've done and they've done some pretty crazy things but you know what's there to say that medics have despite all the trauma of treating civilians and and i've count myself very lucky that I didn't have to treat an Australian soldier that was killed. The same can't be said for some of my mates and colleagues. So I'm very lucky on that that sense. You know, certainly treated lots of people who succumbed to their injuries, but no Australians, thankfully. So, you know, I don't want to be the one that says that medics see a lot more worse things. The other thing is we're trained for that as well. You know, you spend a lot of time training on mannequins, training on other training tools and doing ride-alongs with ambulance services, working in trauma bays and hospitals. So you're trained to do that. So just like some of our contacts were probably more a heart racing moment for me than the operators because that's what they train to do. So when they do it in real life, it's just game day for them. And like a medic, treating casualties is game day for us. Everyone's different though. So some people carry that burden more than others. Would you put it down as it takes resilience to do your role, to be able to be that type of person that can put it aside and just go, this is my job. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what I need to do. Oh, for sure. It takes a different type of person to be a medic. And that's not in any form of elitism or whatnot. Most of the time, it's just you. That's a heavy burden to carry, being the only medical person. And looking back on it now, after you know, I suppose being a medic for 18, 19 years now, that I was 22 and, and certainly not experienced. So, you know, I look at what my role was. It's pretty scary looking back on it. So I think, that, you know, a lot of medics are resilient. You know, a lot of people say that we have a pretty dark sense of humour. So many times where if you told a story or repeated some stuff that was said, at a trauma casualty or a deceased person to a non-medical person, they may think you're a very sick person. And this is most medical professions that we have a certain type of dark humor. And I think it's our cope mechanism. It's our way of being resilient is that dark humor. Our day sometimes is maybe someone's last day on this earth. If you hold that too personal, then I think that's you know, not going to go real well in the future. And uh, and this is where army medics are different too, different. Uh, and when I say medics, I take I mean the whole medical fraternity. So doctors, nurses, unlike when you work on an ambulance, most medical people and paramedics in the civilian world, well, chances are they'll never respond to someone that they know. Whereas as an army medic, you're treating your brothers. Like these are the guys that you have known for years. You know their partners, their wives, girlfriends, kids. You train with them. You go out with them on weekends. You know, you spend more time with these guys than you do with your own family a lot of the time. And so you have this bond that is nothing that I've experienced outside of the military. And you may be called upon to treat them and they may be critically ill and they may perish. And that's something that I think is pretty full on and very unlike any civilian medical practice. So I think for that medic to be able to go on after treating, having that thought that, you know, your treatment may or may not make a difference in this person's life is something that, that I think you need a pretty special person. Moving to um, the end of your time at Afghanistan, then it came time to go home. How was your adjustment settling back to a slower paced life? You know, there's certain parts, you know, you'd go to the shops and you'd see a kid who's just losing their shit because they can't get a Mars bar at the checkout. And then you'd think back and you're like, man, I just treated a kid who had their genitals dumped in boiling hot water because they cried. And this kid's mum will give them a Mars bar because they crack it for 30 seconds. And so things like that, I would just in my head be like, what is just that perspective of how lucky we are? I've been very lucky that uh, I've never lost a night's sleep over anything coming home. Very lucky that the medic stuff you back, you know, we were sort of after annual leave straight back into it. 
I was then posted to the tactical assault group east to counterterrorism for a for a short period of time and then I got on my underwater medicine course and then I went and did a Navy course for seven months, which was a long seven months working an Army guy, working on a Navy base. And then I went back on TAG. So I was very busy from when I got back. There was sort of talk of doing sergeant's course and then that would be posting out of the unit to go back to a field hospital as a sergeant and that was not something I really wanted to do. I didn't want to leave the command. I loved being a medic. As a sergeant, you sort of get off the tools a little bit more and you sort of become a little bit more managing medics. And I definitely didn't want to go back to a field hospital after what I'd done with special operations and TAG and stuff. So I thought I'd throw my hat in the ring and try to do select, commando selection to try stay in the unit. Any opportunity I could to stay in the unit. So I thought if I got that Green Beret, then I'd be able to stay. I had that attempt to go. Not so well for me. It was the fittest I'd ever been. I was even way fitter than I was in Afghanistan. I was always a runner always that sort of beanpole runner. So I had to try and bulk up a little bit with upper body strength. And then the big thing, you do lots of running on selection and lots of running with your weapon and your body armor and things like that. So all that weight in your boots. So I was doing a lot, trying to do a lot of running with weighted gear. I think it was day six or seven, I started to get really severe pain in my shins and uh, the starting of shin splints. And then by day 11, I think it was, I was in the locker and could hardly walk. So I was medically withdrawn. The doctor pulled me off selection on day 11, so I got through phase one. I didn't make the cut for selection. My, uh, my sort of body definitely didn't put up with it, and I definitely can't say I could have passed it. Looking at the numbers, there's probably a good chance I would have failed it. Well, at least you gave it a solid go. Yeah, I gave it a crack, and I, I don't regret it. I don't regret it at all. Obviously, I, uh, I wish my, uh, my body could have done it, but I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. What then saw you say goodbye to your time in the Army? For me, I just achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I was 24 years old. I wasn't ready to be a manager. I wasn't ready to give up the medic stuff. And I, saw, I suppose I wanted to quit while I was ahead. I was seven years in the Army by that stage. For me, it was just time to move on. We'd done a lot of work at the commandos with the Special Casualty Access Team, the New South Wales Ambulance SCAT paramedics. For me, I was like, oh, well, that's the obvious next thing for me is to, to move to ambulance, remain clinical. So I popped in my application to the ambulance service and, yeah, was lucky to, to be selected. And so I started my career in the ambulance and then posted out of the unit to, and I remained a reservist with one commander at Mossman for a few years. So you kept on pursuing a career then afterwards as a paramedic, which led you to starting up your own company from your spare room. After a few years of ambulance, it was very different. It was a very, I love the clinical aspect, but it was very different from going from such a high performance environment, working with the commandos to the health industry, essentially. And, uh, you know, despite what people think of paramedics going to tons of car accidents and shootings and stabbings and things like that, the reality is you spend a good portion of your time taking patients who are over the age of 70. And so you do a lot of medical work and a lot of transfers and nursing homes and stuff like that. But I was working four days on, doing 12-hour shifts. So I was doing four days on, five days off. For me, going from that high level, working a lot to having five days off every, every week, I just had this extra amount of time. I'd always talked about starting a company because we, as a medic, we buying stuff from the U.S., Big borrowing, stealing from the colleagues, you know, from US Army medics, all were buying it on the internet. It's when the US dollar was 50 something cents. We we're waiting weeks for it to arrive. I was like, oh, it's going to be a better way. We just couldn't get anything in Australia. So I'd always talked about starting this business of supplying medic stuff. And after sort of obviously months and whatnot of talking about my wife, I was like, why don't you just start this business? So yeah, I just started this company called TACMED Australia that, that supplies specialist medical equipment for high threat and austere environment. Yeah, I ran it for years, just myself out of my spare bedroom between shifts. It's not just the fact that you ran it for years, but you're still running it up to this day. Yeah, yeah, very much. I never thought I'd make money from it, let alone be my career. So now I'm the managing director and, and have a team of 15 full-time staff and about 30 casuals around Australia. In February was our 10-year anniversary and it, and it grew from a hobby business. You know, the hobby business for four or five years, not taking a cent out of it, just loving playing with army, you know, medic gear until what's now my career and, and whatnot. You had a very different kind of battle a little while ago. With cancer. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I'd uh, spent my career in the army. I went to Afghanistan and then I was a paramedic, you know, so you're seeing a lot of death and you're doing in that job, you're helping a lot of people. And then my business starts to take off and start doing really well. Married, kids of my own, just life is just is awesome. 
And then one day I'm uh, in the shower and feel a lump on my right nut. Might have been a shock for people. Yeah, found a, found a lump on my right testicle. And uh, I had to go to Brisbane to run a course for the, the police tactical unit up in Brisbane. So I'm like, oh, I've never noticed that. Why have I not noticed that before? And it was only a small lump and I'm like, but it was just plain sort of in my mind. And I'm like, Fuck, I do not have time for this. I've got this course to run. And so I run this course and uh, come back and see my GP and got me into an ultrasound about an hour later. You're in this dark room with this another man with your pants around your ankles. <laughs> You're looking up at this screen. So he puts this freezing cold gel on you and you get the, uh, you know, he gets his device and he, and he looked at my, my left side and like, all oh, right, that's what you, you've got this like high definition 60 inch TV above you looking at your nut on TV in a dark room with a man touching you. And, and then, then he puts it on my, uh, my right side where I had the lump. And straight away on this this TV, I could see these these dark masses, and I've just gone, "Fuck, that's not good." And you could tell the demeanor of the guy just changed, and he was starting to stutter. And he's like, "Look, I, I know you're a paramedic, so you've got some knowledge. I'm not allowed to tell you as a sonographer. He wasn't allowed to diagnose me with something. He's like, "You know, this has to go for official review, but in my experience, that doesn't look good." I hadn't really had any exposure to anybody with testicular cancer. I'm obviously quite anxious and so I call my wife and uh, this doesn't look good. They think this is cancer. And then the GP calls back a few hours later and he said, look, the results are back in. They think it's an infection and it's not cancer. That doesn't sound right to me. Like I've spent the last however many years as a paramedic treating people with various types of infections, in, including infections of their uh, testicles and urinary tract infections and uh, there's no pain. There's no pain. I've got no fever. There's no swelling. I'm like, there's no sign of infection. Being a paramedic up in the area, I knew one of the local doctors that would be treating it. It was a surgery. As a medic, I'd transported quite a number of his mistakes. So I said to my GP, I'm like, he's not touching me. We traveled down to, uh, to Port Macquarie and seen this amazing urologist. Yeah, straight away, he's like, you've got testicular cancer. By that stage, I'd done obviously a lot of research on it. I'd gone through whatever the periods are of, uh, of grief, you know, anger, grief, being upset, being pissed off. All Probably that first night was probably the most emotive until you had all that knowledge. And then from that stage, I'm like, well, let's make this happen. I never once thought I was going to die from it. If you're going to get cancer, it, it's the one to get. It's very treatable. It's got a high survival rate, mid to high 90s. Really shit thing about testicular cancer is they can't biopsy it. So the only way to confirm that it actually is testicular cancer is to remove your nut and for them to do the pathology on it. So when you're going under, when you're going into your, you know, to have your surgery and your anesthetic, you know, the doctor's like just warning you, like, you know, you have to make that decision and obviously approve them to take it, but you're giving them that approval thinking it, there's a chance it might not be cancer and they've taken your nut for an infection. And so, you know, waking up from the general anesthetic, it was like they'd taken a wheel, but I'm like, just tell me you didn't take it for nothing. Found out that it was confident they got it all. And from then it was the decision on whether you go down the chemo path or whether you, uh, whether you don't. My father-in-law had testicular cancer when he was probably about my age and it almost, the chemo almost killed him. And thankfully there's been 30, you know, between him getting it and me, there's been 30 years of science and data. And so now they had the science there that say, hey, look, chemo only gives you about an extra 15, 10 to 15% more chance of it not coming back and treating it. But there can be long-term side effects of chemotherapy. Obviously they're, they're putting essentially a poison into your body. For me, uh, you know, I made that decision that if it was to come back, you're going to get chemo anyway. So for me, I was like, well, I'm not going to go through that. So yeah, after the surgery, didn't really sit still for too long, got back into life. Someone might pull me up here, but I think it is more common to get the same or more common to get testicular cancer than breast cancer, but a much higher survival rate. Good to know for all the listeners out there. So check your wheels, Tom, <laughs> check your wheels. <laughs> Will do. How do you reflect on your time in the army, looking back over everything? I had an amazing time in the army. And that's not to say that, you know, it's the army. So you do some shit things that, that you don't want to do or enjoy. But in general, I had an amazing experience in the army. It set me up for where I am right now from the experiences, from the training, everything. So I, I had an absolute blast in the Army. I'm very grateful and owe the, owe the Army a lot for where it has brought me in my ambulance and our business. 
So you've got two kids now, is that right? Correct, yeah. I've got uh, I've got a pigeon pair, so I've got a, uh, a son and a daughter. Do you think they might be looking towards the army career one day? Mate, it, uh, it's funny because I, I don't talk too much about army at all. You know, the most I sort of do about army is obviously Anzac days. Uh, so I don't really talk much about army at all. However, this is why I think it might be DNA because my son, who's eight years old, I took him to an army disposal store and he went in there and his eyes just lit up. And he's looked at me, he's like, why did I not know about this place? I think a few hundred bucks later, we walked out with, pains me to say this, that I paid money for scrim camouflage and netting and stuff. Uh, but my son is sick for it. The other day, he's built a hide across in the bush from us. He's in there with a fake M4, army scrim, wearing his camo pants. So I think there's a good chance that uh, certainly my son may go on to join. But, you know, that's that's his decision. I have a feeling it'll be the same as when I join is that uh, I don't think my wife will have a bar of it. And I think I'll be signing documents if, if that's a decision that he ends up making. Well, Jez, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your service and for sharing your story. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Thomas Kay, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. More of that music in just a moment. After we recorded this interview with Jeremy, he was awarded Veteran Entrepreneur of the Year by Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the Australian Government Department of Veterans Affairs for his work with TACMED Australia, an Australian veteran business. Jez was featured in the 2018 documentary Voodoo Medics by Kristen Shorten. You can hear more about the voodoo medicine movement and that documentary in the Season 2 bonus episode Voodoo Medics with Mark Donaldson VC, Dr Dan Pronk and Kristen Shorten. They quite often dealt with patching up the enemy. They quite often dealt with patching up the civilian population as well. Having this misconception that every veteran, and particularly every combat veteran, is damaged and all of them are are coming apart with post-traumatic stress. They've got their mates' lives in their hands. They're also required to fight. They're under a lot of pressure and they carry a lot of responsibility. Jez also mentioned Dan the 70-kilo dickhead. That would be Dr Dan Pronk, who last year published his book, Average 70-kilo Dickhead, Motivational Lessons from an Ex-Army Special Forces Doctor. You can hear Dan's story of service in his two-part conversation with Sharon Maskell-Dare in Season 2, Number 31, Dr Dan Pronk, Volume 1. Certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment, and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with you know, the day before, and also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and, and you simply can't. And volume two. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. And you can hear more about Dan's book and why he's an average 70-kilo dickhead in his bonus episode with me in season three, Lessons of a Combat Doctor with Dr Dan Pronk. But I never had any doubt or second guessing. So mentally that was like, hang on, I got this. Yeah, I'm, I'm injured. Everyone's injured. I'm losing weight. Everyone's losing weight. We're all broken. We're all sleep deprived, food deprived. But it was from then on in, I just I decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on or they physically removed me from the course, that I was going to get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell. Jazz also mentioned parachuting injuries. For a story of a serious parachute injury, listen to a veteran of the 1st Commando Regiment share his experience with Angus Horden in Season 2, Number 29, Todd Vale. I knew I was in a bad way because I couldn't feel from my waist downwards I was paralysed. There was blood. My arm, my right arm, which felt like it was sticking out, was draped over my head and there was blood tricking down into my eyes. Subscribe to Life on the Line to never miss an episode, including more Special Forces stories still to come. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Workhoven. Closing music, What is Life? by The Externals, the world's only Special Forces original rock band. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. So you stand by.
Oh, no.